And now I can ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, please. And as you find that, let me put tonight's outline up in the corner of the screen. And before I give you the outline, I, I do want to read it for you. So those that are listening uh, just by audio and don't have access to the video part of this, I want them to be able to have the outline as well. So if you would, join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson tonight. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and as always, as always, Father, we, we seek guidance. We, um, we are determined to hear from you tonight, Lord. No matter what verse, no matter what chapter we're in, we believe that these are your words, that you have inspired and preserved them so that we can learn, we can be instructed unto righteousness, we can be reproved, we can, Lord, whatever it is that you need to add to us tonight, or even to take away, I pray that you'd allow your word to do its job tonight. And Father, please give us ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Romans chapter 16. And it should be right up the other way, that there, should be right over there in the corner. The outline for tonight, Romans 16 breaks into three parts. Number one, a, we're going to talk about blessed fellow laborers, blessed fellow laborers, verses 1 to 16. And then uh, verses 17 to 20, big fat liars. And you'll see why we have given it that title when we get to that section. And uh, then I tried, I, I'm looking for a B, F, and an L. So best for last. Paul will go back to uh, some of his fellow laborers and make sure that he makes note of them. But then also he gives some final words of instruction. So the best for last. All right, Romans chapter 16 and verse number one. Let me point this out. As we even before we read it, because, and I alluded to this last Sunday evening, at the end of chapter 15, it looks as if the epistle is going to end, right? Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It it has a it has the feel of the letter drawing to a close, and then Paul goes into an entire other chapter. Some people, some scholars have even said that. That chapter 16 may not have been part of the original writing of Paul because it looks as if it ended and then it continued on. There's no reason to doubt the 16th chapter of the book of Romans. All the manuscripts that have, have been recovered, uh, it lends evidence and it, it supports the idea that chapter 16 is part of the, the original documents. However, uh, this is quite common for preachers, right? We get to the final word. And the final word is very rarely the final word, right? There's always a little extra you want to say. And you can see by the content of chapter 16, Paul's not really teaching anything new. Just a, fi a final few hellos, goodbyes, make sure you say uh, greetings, and, and uh, I'm recommending this and that person. So you can see it's odds and ends put into this chapter. <clears throat> All right, so chapter 16 and verse 1. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister which is a servant of the church, which is at Sencrea. Or I, I think some people say Kencrea, but I'm going to say Sencrea. That's how I've always heard it. Now, there's a few things I'd like to point out from, from verse 1. First of all, Paul is commending. This is his way of giving approval for this person that is coming to visit the church in Rome. If you let your eyes sneak down to the very end of the epistle, right after the last verse. Some of you might have this in your Bibles. Some Bibles, some editions of the Bible do not uh, include the subscript. There's small little words at the end of the book. <clears throat> sorry. But it says in... <clears throat> very sorry. At the end of the book, it says, written to the Romans from Corinthius and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church at Sencrea. So it looks as if Phoebe was the one responsible for delivering this epistle to the Roman church, which would make sense then of why Paul um, makes sure that he adds a line or two about Phoebe in the epistle so that the church at Rome knows this is a, a trustworthy fellow laborer in the gospel ministry. Uh, so I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant. Now in several other uh 
English versions of the Bible, that word servant is translated, let me say that carefully, it is transliterated as a deaconess, a deaconess. Now, the word diakon, as, as you guys might know it uh, in Afrikaans, a diakon, it comes from this Greek word, let me put it on the screen there, move it down a little bit so you can see it, uh, diak, the, the actual word as it appears in this verse is diakonon. Now the, the root of it is diakonos, but diakonon, this is the feminine version of the word. It is translated as servant. And in many, many places, even in the King James Bible, diakonos or any form of it is translated as servant or minister. And then you will find occasions where the word has more of a transliterated look. And instead of servant or minister, you'll see deacon. Now, what people have done is they go to this verse and they say, well, it's diakonon, so this girl, this, this female, she is a deaconess. Now, let me point out a couple things about why I, I think it's, it's somewhat of a, a silly argument to get into. Should it be servant? Should it be deaconess? What does the word mean? What does it mean? It, it's somebody who's ministering. It's somebody who is running errands, the runner in the dust. Phoebe is doing all these small jobs in the ministry, right? She's not up in the pulpit preaching necessarily, but she's down there helping Paul, running an epistle from one place to the next. She is properly a servant. There's nothing wrong with this translation. If you want to use the title deaconess, does it change her function, right? We, we have to consider, are we talking about the title or the function? It doesn't change what she's doing regardless of what you call her. So at the end of the day, it really doesn't make sense to have long discussions or arguments about the, the proper term that you want to apply to Phoebe. Here's why, though, I believe it's, it's a good idea to leave it a servant and not say deacon S. Because, take your Bible, come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now we know that in Acts chapter 6, we have the first deacons that were chosen. And they, were, they had hands laid on them. They, that that uh, position of deacon, it took on an official status in the church, an official position of leadership in the church. Even though they were not, a deacon is not, can we say, commissioned to stand and, and preach. He doesn't have to preach. A deacon doesn't have to be a preacher, but he can be. He can be. And a deacon will be making decisions that affect the local church. He can do that. That's part of what you would expect from the office of a deacon. Any Christian, man or woman, can fulfill, can fulfill the, the can I, I want to say, the function of a servant. Anybody can. But fulfilling the office, right, the, the recognized office within the local church of this person who is in charge of organizing certain things, taking care of certain problems in the book of Acts, it was making sure that the daily ministration was taken care of. Everybody got the food they needed. Who is in charge? It's a part of organizing the efforts of the local church to have offices. Garrett recently taught you in Ephesians 4, there are offices listed out. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. 1 Timothy 3, here's another office. Look, look with me at verse number 10. In verses 1 to 9, it's the office of a bishop. In verse 10, it says, And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon. Forgive me, it's verses 1 to 7 is the bishop. And then verse 8 to 10, and on down even after that, we're dealing with the deacon. What I want you to see in verse 10, let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. So deacon is a recognized office in the local church. Now, when you take the title deaconess, even though you can make a linguistic case, right, to say if you can translate that feminine Greek word into English and say deaconess, linguistically that makes sense, but is it a smart thing to do knowing that the leadership in a local church in the New Testament, Paul said that the woman should not usurp authority over the man, that it, it was men that Jesus put into leadership positions, that's, that is the structure that we have for the New Testament local church. So that's why I wouldn't use the word deaconess, even though Phoebe and many women today are still fulfilling the task. They're doing the job 
of a servant in the church. And if you even wanted to use the word deaconess, she is fulfilling the meaning of that Greek word. Now, does that mean that she's a recognized leader? I wouldn't say so. But does it mean that she has volunteered herself to, to do what is necessary to help the church? Absolutely. And the New Testament is filled with examples where Paul and other people as well acknowledge the great help that several ladies were. Let me show you one example. Come to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to take down the outline. That's all right. If anybody needs it, you can let me know and I'll put it back up. But I'm going to take that down for now along with Diakonal. You've seen that. Philippians chapter 4. And let's take a look at verse 3. Paul says here, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with the other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Paul acknowledges that there were several women that labored with him. When it comes to getting the gospel out, now whatever... What, what functions did they serve? Does that mean they were out there in public, in the markets, preaching alongside of him? It could be. It could be. A, a woman can do that. But uh, take your Bible. Look at Luke chapter 8. Let me show you another thing that the ladies in, the, in biblical times were very keen to do. Luke chapter 8. And let's look at verse number 3. Luke chapter 8, verse 3, it says, And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna. Now, it's just listing. There's several women mentioned even starting in verse 2. It says, And Susanna and many others which ministered unto him, unto Jesus, of their substance. What did they do? Jesus needed a meal. Maybe he needed a place to sleep. Maybe he needed his clothes washed, that kind of thing. You say that's such a menial task. That's what a runner in the dust does. He does, she does, those small things. I had a meeting earlier this week and somebody asked me about Christina, my wife, and said, well, what does does she do? And just, it was a very uh, broad question, just wanting to get to know me and and my family a little bit. And they asked, what does she do? Which is a great question. And I said, here's my answer. Really, we need to change the question. The real question is, what does she not do? Outside of standing up in the church and leading the service, right? Preaching, teaching during a, a full assembly, you know, men, women, everybody, all the members together. I don't know of anything that Christina doesn't get involved in. Whether it's the sound system, folding tracks, printing tracks. Um, at various times, she has been the secretary. Of course, now we have a, a uh, full-time secretary, but Christina has at, at one point or another done pretty much everything except fill the pulpit. And even there, when it comes to teaching ladies, right, in accordance with Titus chapter 2, she teaches the younger ladies. So sometimes people, when they, when they hear that the local church, the leadership structure is, is just for men, they get the idea that women somehow become second rate, and that, that is not the picture we get from the New Testament. It's not the picture we get from church history either. When you read through church history, you see many, many times where women organized a lot of outreach efforts and took the gospel to various places. So to commend Phoebe, this is Paul's Paul's recognizing what a difference a woman can make in the ministry. And truth be told, even in our church, we could go on and on about how many things that the ladies in our church do, the the massive difference they, they make. All right, so back to Romans 16 and verse 1. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sencrea. I'm going to put a map up here by the grace of God. I don't think you can see my face here. I don't know if you can see my cursor moving. Uh, Maybe somebody can let me know if, if that's happening. But I'm going to talk my way through it, and I'm going to use my mouse at the same time. Uh, right here in the middle of the map, you see at the top it says Thrace, and then as you come down, you see Macedonia, Greece, Achaia. If you keep coming down, there's an island south of Achaia, and at the top it says Corinth, and then it says Sencrea. All right, so I just want you to see where it's at, 
And then if you're looking at the map and look left, I'm moving my cursor left, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, you see Italy on the left, no cursor, okay. I will stop using that. But uh, you can see on the left, Italy, and you can also see there's a line. This is uh, Paul's third missionary journey, in case you're wondering what that red, what the red arrows are indicating. But the red arrows end up in Rome. So you can see where this letter was written from uh, in Corinth. And then Phoebe came to visit and took this epistle and took it all the way to Rome. So this, this map gives you an idea of the distance that it traveled. All right, back to verse number two. It says that ye receive her in the Lord. So this is a, a recommendation letter almost that, that Paul has slipped into this epistle to say, don't, don't doubt that she's legitimate. She's the real deal. Receive her in the Lord as becometh saints. So you, the same hospitality that, that any you would expect from any Christian, give to her. And that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. Now look at that. You, you talk about putting things in the proper perspective. Phoebe shows up and says, I need X, Y, and Z for the ministry. Now please help me. Paul's saying, uh, pay attention to what she's asking for. Make sure that she gets what she needs. That's really saying something. She may not have been the pastor. She may not have had a recognized office, but she pulled a lot of weight. She made a big difference, and she was getting something done. At the end of verse 2, For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Now the word succorer, if you look at the root word uh, that gives us that, the, the Greek word, it can also be translated as assistant. Assistant. Very interesting. That makes me think that I would turn to somebody like Janae, our church secretary, she is a succorer of many. Boy, that's true. And Michelle before, my wife before that, it, I, I see how that function that those ladies have, have uh, fulfilled in our ministry, I see how Phoebe probably did the same thing back in the day. A succorer of many and of myself also. So Paul needed assistance with various things and he could turn to, to, to Phoebe, faithfully get the help he needed. Verse three, and now we start we're going to delve into a long list of names. There's not a whole lot to say historically about them. Here and there, there, there are some extra pieces of information, but for the most part, we're just going to be introduced to various people that were present at the Roman church. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Now, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in several places in Scripture. Um, that we were first introduced to them in the book of Acts, chapter 18. Aquila and Priscilla had recently come out of Rome because there was a, a decree made by Claudius uh, that Jews had to leave, so they ended up in Corinth. That's where Paul met them, and they hit it off. And from that time forward, Aquila and Priscilla, that's a husband and wife team, Aquila being the husband. Priscilla, sometimes her name is, the Bainom version of it is Prisca. Uh, but they are fellow helpers of Paul for the rest of their, their lives. So he says, greet them. And then verse 4, who have for my life laid down their own necks. So that uh, it alludes to the idea of beheading. They were ready to die in defense of Paul or to help Paul. Uh, we're, we're not told the details around the sacrifice that they were prepared to make, but, but they were ready for that. Who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So it's, it's not that they only ministered to me or helped me when they stood up for me, but Paul went on to be able to help several other churches. So that act of assistance or kindness, whatever it was, uh, now hundreds, yea, thousands of people were, were blessed by that. So many thanks to them. Verse 5, likewise greet the church that is in their house. Now this is interesting. And when you read about Aquila and Priscilla, they were in Corinth for a while. They were in Ephesus for a while. And now it appears that they're in Rome. But on more than one occasion, you find a church in their home. It, it looks as if each town that they moved to they got a little church started in their home. Now, this, this is not a cell group, okay? Let's not be confused about it. I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not condemning cell groups. This, this is not meant to, to, to speak evil of cell groups. I can show you this isn't the time for it, but I've actually been looking a little deeper into that. There is a very smart way to use the idea of cell groups. I think, I think that idea can be abused, and I think sometimes people turn it into a gossip ring and things like that. It turns into its own little church, which can be dangerous because all of a sudden people are pitted against the pastor and it can get ugly. But what you have going on here is a full-on church with Aquila being the pastor. He is the one organizing the services, teaching the people. And then in Priscilla, she would be, much like Phoebe, assisting her husband, not preaching to the entire assembly, but, but helping out in, in that church. But it was in their house. Now this is interesting because if it's in Rome, there's a group of Christians gathering in one location in Rome, which is obviously a big city, right? There is a, a, a bigger assembly in Rome. Paul's addressing that assembly with this epistle. But he says, hey, say hi to Aquila and Priscilla and the church that's in their house. So who knows? I, I don't know the exact details of this, but maybe they lived on the outskirts of town or other side of town. And not everybody could assemble to one point. So Aquila and Priscilla, they opened up their home to have people in each and every Sunday and and a church was formed from that. So it's a very legitimate thing to do. Verse 5, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinatus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. So if I'm understanding this correctly, the first convert that Paul saw in Achaia, that'll be Corinth, was this man Epinatus. So he says, salute him. Just say hello, recognize him, uh, offer him Christian hospitality. That all goes with the salutation. But notice well-beloved, well-beloved. Paul was able to develop, evidently, a, a, a deeper relationship with this convert. Now, I know how this goes in the ministry. We, you can't, as a pastor or as a preacher, as an evangelist, you cannot develop the same level of a relationship with every single person in your church or every person you ever meet. As much as I would like to be able to do that, I would love to be able to go from house to house and braai and care and chat and fellowship. That would be lovely. It, it, it's not realistic for that to happen. Um, but sometimes you get to develop a, a sincere, deep uh, Intimate's not the right word to use, but you just make a, a deeper connection with certain people. And sometimes it's because you have similar interests, and sometimes it's because uh, you get to go through some things together. You get to help them out, and you get to know them on a deeper level. But whatever the case was, we're not given the details. Epinatus was close to Paul's heart. So he says, say, say hello to him. Uh, verse 6, greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. That's all we know about this Lady Mary. I, I don't know what else to tell you. There are, if, I, if memory serves, seven different Marys, at least seven different Marys that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, the, the, the problem is some of these Marys might overlap. So it may not be a full seven, right? Like this Mary. There's a couple Marys mentioned in, I think it's, uh, well, in the book of Acts, I know you have a couple. I think there's another one in Colossians. There's there's some Mary, and in the Gospels, you have a couple as well. So which Mary this is, we're not sure. But whoever it was, Paul is acknowledging that she went out of her way to help him So and, and whoever was with him at the time. Greet her. Verse 7, salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my, and my fellow prisoners. So th that's an interesting, interesting thing to say, my fellow prisoners, because Paul at this point hasn't, this is not, actually, that, just as I'm reading that, thinking that, it, I'm wondering now if Paul might have written this part of the letter later, but he couldn't have done that. Because Paul wasn't in prison. This isn't a prison epistle. As best we can tell, he wrote this in Acts chapter 18 before he spent time in prison. Very interesting. Very interesting why he'd mentioned my fellow prisoners. We'll have to take a longer look at that another time. Maybe there was a short time, yeah, there was a short time where Paul was taken into custody. Possibly that's what he's referring to. But let's get back to verse 7. Andronicus and Junia, he says, my kinsmen. Now that can 
mean my relatives. So these could be cousins, maybe, of Paul. I'm not sure what the relation would be. Kinsmen can also mean my fellow countrymen, right? So it could, he could be saying that they are fellow Jews, that, that, that they have that much in common. Uh, so kinsmen, you're going to see it again a couple times in the passage. I don't want to overstep my bounds, but Andronicus and Junia, that is a man and a woman. Junia is a, is a female name. Um, and he says, salute them. So they have made their way to the church in Rome. And he says in verse 7, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So they got saved before Paul got saved. And what's interesting about what Paul has said here, uh, some people teach that Paul, that the, the, the body of Christ was started with Paul, that he was the first member of it. And this verse completely overthrows that idea. Right? Paul admits that there were other people in Christ before he was. Uh, Paul was the first one to reveal the mystery of the body, right? but it, the body of Christ did not start with him. It was already there. People just weren't aware of, of what the Holy Spirit was doing and how the baptism of the Holy Spirit was forming this body. They didn't know the inner workings of, of that. All right, now another thing from verse 7 that sometimes uh, people say, it says in the middle, who are of note among the apostles? So from this, people say Andronicus and Junia are apostles. It says that they are of note among the apostles. So they say among all the apostles, you have Andronicus and Junia, that these two are counted as apostles. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting approach. I, I don't know if verse 7 can support the weight of that claim. I think it can equally be deduced from this verse that the apostles made note of these other two Christians. Not, I don't think that verse 7 can by any means definitively or conclusively prove that these two people should be included in a list of apostles. But sometimes when you find people making a list of apostles, you'll, you'll see these two names on the list, and it's only because of how this is worded there. Um, me personally, I, I, because we have no other mention of them, I lean more towards saying that the apostles took note of these other two believers and they had evidently done something that was worthy of the apostles' attention. As most of the people in this list, that's true of them as well. Verse 8, greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. All right, so Epinatus, he was well-beloved. And now Amplius, my beloved. Again, Paul had a, a bit more of a friendship with him than some of the other believers, but we don't know much about him. Verse 9, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Just some more names put in there. This would be very relevant to the Roman church for us. They're just names. Now, I say just names. If you dig into the history books and into Christian tradition, you're going to find that almost everybody in this list, almost everybody in this list, can be, some people say, that they were part of the 70 that Jesus chose and sent out. And you read about it in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. So there was a, remember Jesus, he, he sent the 12 out, and then later on he sent 70 out to help in the ministry. And then people say that these names we're reading about were all people that Jesus chose and part of that 70. Now that's... That history, that part of church history is a little bit sketchy, a little, little bit dodgy because you have people a few hundred years after the fact writing about these names and writing about these people and, and making that claim. It's, there's not, there are not very strong claims to support that each one of these people were part of the 70. But almost every name in the list, I think when I get to a name that's not in the list, it'll be easier to point that out. But Beyond that, there's not a lot that we'll find out about these, these people. You do read about a few of them uh, mentioned in church history books about being a pastor in a certain place and, and doing something that was noteworthy. But beyond that, we're, we're just going to have to know their names for now. Verse 10, salute Apollos or Apelus, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of, the, uh, which are of Aristobulus' household. Now, he says, salute 
Neapolis approved in Christ. Take your Bible and come over to the book of Philippians. Let me show you a verse here. Philippians 3. Why it's important that Paul is approving certain people. Now, if you're the one being approved, it, it might be a little uncomfortable because if you're serving the Lord, you're not doing it for Paul's approval. You're not doing it so that the church recognizes you. You're doing it for Christ. Yeah, And Paul acknowledges that. Right? He's approved in Christ. He's doing it for the right reasons. But even though it may not be comfortable for you to hear the pastor or some other preacher say, this, this guy's the real deal. This lady, she's doing a great job. It's, it's the right thing to do. Now, we got to be balanced about it. You don't want to put too much attention on that person. It might, uh, might swell their head, but it is right to talk about these who are approved. Philippians 3, uh, let's get, where do I want this? Verse 17, verse 17, Philippians 3, 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them. Now, this will be important for later. Mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. And we would say example. Mark them. Make note of them. Approve them. It's the same. We're saying pretty much the same thing when we talk about this. Mark them. Point them out. Say, that guy is the real deal. If you want a good example of how to live the Christian life, Watch him live it. Watch her live it. Now, especially in a local church, it's good. It's good to know when you get into a church, who's serious? Where can I go for help? Because you're not always going to have access to the pastor. It's nice to know who else in this church can I take seriously. And Paul says, mark them. And that's what he's doing in Romans 16. He's marking some of these brothers and sisters. All right, back to Romans 16, um, verse 11. Salute Herodion, my kinsman. Now, again, that term pops up. Is this a distant relative of Paul, a cousin or an uncle or something? Or is this just a fellow Jew who also became a, a believer in Christ? I don't know. I don't know. I, either way, it can be true. But Herodian, we do have a little information about him uh, from church history <clears throat> more than some other people. This gentleman was evidently a bishop or a pastor in a church in a place called Patros or Petros. And he was beaten, stoned, stabbed in his legs, and left for dead. But as the history books have it, he rose up from it and went right back to ministering in the church, even though he had this horrible stuff going on and this pressure and persecution. Uh, he eventually met his death again, according to history, on the same day that Peter was crucified upside down. I don't know if Herodian was there physically, right, in the same geographical location, or if it was just the same, same day, but it is said that he died on the same day. So he is of note amongst uh, these early Christians for those reasons. Salute Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Again, these names not... We don't have much to say about them, but in the early church, they would have known who this is. Verse 12, salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Everybody in verse 12 is female. All of these names are, are feminine. If you look at in, with Greek, you can often see if it's feminine or masculine by the way that it's worded, by the way it is written. But all of these are feminine names. Uh, I actually had a guy come to me once. He said, Brother Mike, Brother Mike, I found a verse in the Bible that proves women should be in the military. I said, okay, as if we need, why are we bringing the Bible into that discussion? But he said, and then he showed me this verse. He says, it says, salute him. I thought, brother, that's, that is not what verse 12 was meant for, but he thought he'd really found something there. But again, you can see how Paul is acknowledging the labor that these ladies have uh, performed but the beloved Persis, this is somebody that Paul, again, uh, evidently had a, a better friendship or relationship with than some of the others. Verse 13, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Now, that wording leaves itself open to a couple understandings. His mother and mine, does, 
does Paul and Rufus share the same mother? It, I lean towards that he's saying, say hi to Rufus's mother and say hi to my mother, which is a different person. I would read it that way. But again, it doesn't matter, right? It, it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. But this Rufus, there's really no way to prove what I'm about to say next. I'm just going to give you the uh, what some folks have, the connection that some people have made. Mark chapter 15, um, we have another Rufus mentioned, or let's say the name Rufus is mentioned. Whether or not it's another man, I don't know. But Mark 15, verse 21, it says, And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So by the time Mark wrote this gospel, he is aware of who Alexander and Rufus are. Uh, these two men evidently had, had I want to say, come to bear on the early church and, and meant something to them. So by including their name in this gospel account, evidently people knew who they were. If this is the same Rufus, isn't that interesting that Simon the Cyrenian who carried the cross, this would indicate then, because right, we don't read anything about Simon the Cyrenian beyond that event. It looks as if, though, that that event had a great impact on his family, and not only Simon, but that is his boys also became believers. All right, so back to Romans 16 and verse 14. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobas, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Say, who are they? Don't know. I did the best I could to pronounce their names, and God knows when we get to heaven, they'll probably straighten me out on how badly I just said it, but just more people that Paul is saying hi to. Verse 15, salute Philologus. Philologus. That's a Greek name, two words put together, Philo and Lologus, a lover of words. I, I picture Philologus as somebody who loves to talk, you know, one of them talkative people, Philologus. And Julia, that's a, a feminine name, and Nerus, Nerus. This is the one name, Nerus, that I have never been able to see connected to the list of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Everybody else in the list, excluding the feminine names, everybody else in the list, there, there's some mention of them in history is connected to the 70. Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. So say hello to all of them. Verse 16, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. So on behalf of all the other churches that Paul has started and that Paul knows about, we salute you. We want to say hello. We're just showing that we recognize you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now notice, salute one another with an holy kiss. This depends on the culture where you're at. How would you properly show, how would you affectionately show that you welcome that person. Uh, right now, we're not, only, not even allowed to shake hands, so the elbow bump has become our salute and, you know, for most of us. Uh, the Chinese had it figured out with this, right? They, they just bow, so they didn't have any hygienic issues. Uh, we certainly couldn't go forward with a holy kiss at this point. That, would, that wouldn't work either. Now, I had somebody press me on this once. They used this verse, and they said, Brother Mike, you believe the Bible literally. But when it comes to this, you say that we can take into account the culture and instead of kissing, we can... By the way, the holy kiss is just one of those pecks on the cheek, just so that you know. But they say, you're, you're saying that we don't have to do that literally, that we can shake hands or bow or some other form of greeting or salutation. Now, when we say, I, or when I say, I take the Bible literally, I mean, when I read the Bible... It means what it says and says what it means. The principle of the verse stands true. I don't think there's any hidden symbolic meaning to this. I think the salutation should be given. I think that the holy kiss is exactly, it, it fit that culture and it needed to be done. I think it, it had a real meaning. But for us, do we have to follow along with the holy kiss? I don't think the I don't think Paul is driving at we have to follow this cultural standard. We would have to learn the the spirit of this of this command rather than the letter of the law, rather the spirit of the law. 
the person, the point they were trying to make is they said, well, culture now says that it's okay for women to be preachers. So shouldn't we also then adapt and change our, the way we obey the Bible and allow women to, to function in the ministry? And they thought that they found me in a bit of a, of a conundrum there, that I created a paradox of some sort. I don't see that at all. By saying, shake hands in the place of holy kissing, I'm not asking you to completely overthrow this verse. I'm not asking you to reverse it, but take into account that when Paul wrote this, he wrote it to certain people that practiced a salutation in a particular way. It's not the same thing as Paul offering structure for the church and saying, this is how we're going to do it. You try to overthrow that based on culture. Now you're, now you're bringing in a different standard and a different authority. All right, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. Remember that from Philippians? Mark them. So he has for 16 verses marked the people who are approved in Christ. And now he's going to command these Roman Christians Make sure that you mark those that are not approved. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And avoid them. Now, you have to forgive me. I'm going to back up one, one thing I need to mention before I dig into verse 17. I, I Forgive me, it slipped my mind. Uh, I want you to notice one name that is glaringly missing from the list. Verses 1 to 16, you don't read about Peter. You don't read about him. Now that's, that's quite odd because not only the Catholic Church, but many historians, church historians and, and secular historians, place Peter in Rome. But when you look at the actual evidence for him being in Rome, it's, there's, there's not a lot of evidence. There's a few mentions in history books that people said he was there. But it's more of he said, I heard someone say that someone else said that he's there. And then people have claimed to have found the tomb of Peter in, in Rome, that he was buried there. Um, I, I think it would have been easy enough for people to take Peter's body and bury it somewhere other than where he lived. So even if it is Peter's actual tomb, that doesn't mean that he was... Uh, pastoring the church in that city or that he ever even lived there you know, for any amount of time. It could have been that they just erected a tomb or a tombstone in memory of the man because he was a, a great apostle. But the fact that Paul does not send greeting to Peter, he doesn't say salute him, that, I find it very hard to believe that Peter, is, that Peter was ever in Rome if we have Paul not even acknowledging him. That, I think we have to take that into account when we think about where Peter was, but we'll leave off any more comment for, for now. Verse 17, back to this. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. This is not popular. This is not popular, but it needs to be done. It needs to be done. I want to ask you to take your Bible. Let's, let's get several verses now. Uh, let's begin in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. I want to show you some examples of where Paul marked them which caused divisions contrary to sound doctrine. All right, get, get 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I am putting on the screen now. This is your attendance code. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. That's the attendance code for tonight. The Bible says here, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun. Think about that word. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Shun it. Don't put up with it. Don't tolerate it. Verse 17, And their word will eat as doth a canker, we would say a cancer. False doctrine is like a spiritual cancer. Now watch what he does next. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus? He names them. He names the people that are promoting the false doctrine that he's dealing with in this passage, which he, he will tell us in the next verse. Verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred? 
saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So Paul, not only does he point out the, the false doctrine that they're teaching, he points out who's teaching it. Now why do this? So that you know who might cause trouble in your church. So that if one of your church members comes and says, hey, I saw this guy or that guy on YouTube or I picked up this book at, you know, at Kumbuka and, and I've, I've been reading this material, we need to be able to say, ooh, I've heard about this guy and you got to be careful for this, this, and this. Now, if we teach our people sound doctrine, they should be able to, on their own to discern when they read books or listen to sermons uh, on YouTube or elsewhere, they should be able to recognize, wait a minute, that's not right. But still, as shepherds over God's flock, it is necessary for us to point these things out. And you don't have to be a shepherd or a pastor to do this. Just as, forgive me for using the term layman, but just the lay church member, it's good for you to know these men or these people are wolves in sheep's clothing and I'm not saying that you need to be nasty about it. You don't need to slander them. You don't need to uh, go on and on and make an entire ministry out of attacking people. But there does come a time where you need to say, be careful, that guy, that girl, that's, that, that person's dangerous. Uh, I'll give you another example. Get 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. And let's get verse 19. Paul is charging Timothy to, to fight a good fight. And in verse 19, he says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Of whom is, here's the name again, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Look what Paul says here. Whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul's taking it a step further. These people are causing harm to the body of Christ, to the efforts of the gospel. So Paul's prayed and said, God, please let the devil, let the devil get a hold of them for a little while. Shake things up a bit, right? Obviously not unto death because he wants them to learn not to blaspheme. So he wants them to learn a lesson so that they stop it and, and potentially get right from it. Paul takes it very seriously. Look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. And verse number two, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now here he's not talking about the false teacher necessarily. He's talking about the body of Christ in general. They, they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear good teaching. They don't want to hear teaching at all, actually. <laughs> But after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. What they want to hear is what they want to hear. So they'll go out and find people that are not adding to their knowledge, but are telling them what they've already decided is true. So if I can throw out a quick warning, let me fulfill my biblical duty of marking them. I've this one won't come as any surprise, but I, I have serious issues with Joel Osteen and his ministry. And I have seen him on the Larry King show. I've seen him on a couple other interviews. I saw him recently on a show called The Story of God, hosted by Morgan Freeman. Very interesting show. Morgan Freeman goes in and, and actually visits Joel Osteen's church. And Osteen takes him behind the set. And says, I stay away from doctrine. I just want to deal with the practical. Now listen, I, I'm all for giving your people practical uh, wisdom. Right? I, I, I understand there's a time for that. But my problem with Osteen is that he all these opportunities that he's had when, when being interviewed and they asked him pointed questions. Larry King asked him, am I going to hell because I'm a Jew? And then he steps back and instead of taking a stand for the gospel and saying Jesus Christ is the only way, he's the truth, the life, Osteen backs off and just says, it's not my place to judge and things like that. He's telling people what they want to hear. So not only should we warn people, I believe, about the doctrines that are contrary to scripture, 
But also, this guy isn't saying what needs to be said. It's the silence of some preachers that can be deadly. He, he says at the end of uh, at verse 4 here, They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So they, they, they're not interested in hearing what's right. They'll take any story as long as it matches what they already believe. Uh, one last place, get 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. It says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. They're just guessing based on their own opinion. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. There's the prosperity gospel 2,000 years ago. Paul says, from such, withdraw thyself. Withdraw thyself. Don't fellowship with them. Make some distance. Now come back to Romans and you'll see it again in Romans 16. At the end of verse 17, Romans 16, 17, you mark them, and then he says, avoid them. Now, here's what I've often heard. That they say, Pastor Mike, you preach a lot of doctrine, and you're creating division in the body of Christ. Because I will point out this certain practice that you find going on in whatever the church is, is not a biblical practice. They say, you're causing division. No, I'm not. I am trying. That's certainly not my intention. What's my intention in, in pointing it out? My intention is to instruct those who oppose themselves so that they can acknowledge the truth. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. I'm, I'm trying to put the truth of uh, scriptural truth out there so that all of us can unify around that. Listen, if, when you want to talk about things like, well, this church has... Uh, a more lively worship service. Help yourself. Really, folks, I, I must admit, I don't think that's worth I don't think that's worth arguing over with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just because somebody likes a more contemporary service. My issue is when somebody goes to a church only because of that. And when the message that is preached is empty and fluffy, and it doesn't feed, it doesn't rebuke, it doesn't reprove, it doesn't, it doesn't communicate scriptural truth. It's more of a pep talk. You have a life coach instead of a pastor. You have a cheerleader. That is my issue that I often point out. I believe I'm well within biblical boundaries to say such things. The, the option, the, the my motive here is not to divide, not at all. But I do want to warn people that, listen, you start hanging around places where they teach false doctrine, it's eventually going to rub off on you. And it can wreck your, it'll make shipwreck. Right? We read that. It'll make shipwreck. You're alive. Verse 18, we're going to finish up here in just a moment. I, I was hoping to finish the chapter, but I, um, that's fine. That's perfectly fine. We, we, we can do next week, we'll do a little bit of Romans and then a little bit of Matthew maybe. But let's get just a couple more verses. Verse 18, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Their own belly. What are they after? They are after fame and fortune. Anything that can make them a little fatter. <laughs> their own belly. They, they want to please themselves, basically. They're in it. They, they, will, they will stand up and preach to people so that, and we read this in Galatians, right? So that they might affect them, that, that those people have an effect on the one doing the preaching. You make me look good by listening to me. They serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. The hearts of the simple. The, the simple person is somebody who is, not, he'll just believe, she'll just believe whatever they hear. They don't look deeper into the issue. That's a simple believer, and that's, that's not a good thing. The book of Proverbs talks about the simple believing every word, and that's condemned. 
That's not good. There are a lot of people that believe certain things because the person who put forth that teaching said it in a nice way. I think Dr. Ruckman really used a very good illustration for this when, when he explained this, this part of Scripture. He loved dogs. He had a couple German shepherds, and he, he would even come to church sometimes and ask us to pray for his dogs because they were sick or something. He really loved those dogs. But he would tell us a story about how he would sometimes talk to his dogs. And he said, dogs are very simple creatures, which is, well, that, that's why he liked them so much, but several other reasons. But he, he said, you could talk to these dogs if you say it in the right way. It, he said, for these dogs, it's all about how you say it. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. So you can pet them on the head and rub them real nice, you know, and pet them. And, and you say, oh, the dog's name was Fritz. He said, oh, Fritz, I'm going to, oh, Fritz, and smile real big and say it with a, a good tone. Fritz, I'm going to take you out behind the barn and shoot you. Oh, you bad dog, you bad dog. I'm going to take you out behind the barn and shoot you. And he said, that dog, and shake its tail and get all excited. That dog is not listening to what you say. He's listening to how you say it. And he said, you can take the same dog and say, Fritz, you're a good dog. I love you, Fritz. You're a good dog. You talk mean to him. And all of a sudden, they, they cower down. They tuck their tail between their legs and they whimper. They think they've done something wrong. They're not listening to what's said. They just like the way it was said. Oh, this feels good. He's petting me. So it must be, it must be the truth. Because he made me feel so loved. Guys, we should, wow, shouldn't, shouldn't we, as disciples of Christ, know how to love each other? That should always be a point of emphasis. And just because you try to speak the truth does not mean you're lacking love. Can you not see that sometimes you, you tell the truth because you love? And I'm not condoning saying things in a mean way, right? Just because you... You're saying the truth does not justify being mean or rude. But the simple fact of the matter is people need to hear the truth instead of good words and fair speeches, which, which is something that, right, the itching ears is exactly what they want to hear. Verse 19, we'll finish here. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. He says, I... Everybody's heard about how good this, this church is. And he said, man, that rejoices my heart. But yet, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. I think that last statement is, is greatly akin to what Jesus said. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Even that word simple, the Greek word behind it, is the same word you find there for harmless. Harmless as doves. Wise unto that which is good. So the Bible talks about, I think it's in the book of Isaiah, how uh, the nation of Israel, they were wise to do evil and simple about being good. They were the exact opposite about this. So they, they would sit down and plan out how to do all these bad things. But when it comes to doing good, they just shrug it off and pay no attention to it. Paul's turning that around. Wise unto that which is good. He says, guys, put some effort, put some time, plan to do good. Learn not only what to say, but why you say it. Learn how to minister to people and organize your efforts. and Put, put effort and time into that. When it comes to the evil stuff, put no time into planning for sin. Be careful not to overexpose yourself to things that are evil because, and I say this specifically in, in a Bible school setting, we have to know something about uh, false teachings and other religions. Let's, I, I think of Islam because I've debated you know, Islamic apologists. I've had to read up on their false teachings. And I thought, well, you know, how am I now simple concerning evil if I've educated myself in this? I know as much as I need to know so that I can minister to people. But once you know something is evil or wrong, you don't need to spend a lot of time occupying yourself with it. Be simple about it. It's wrong. I know it's wrong. I'll just keep my distance. Right? You don't need to study the depths of pornography to know that it's wrong. 
you don't have to you don't have to uh, subject yourself to the filth of the world to know that it's filthy. One guy said you don't have to jump into a pig pen to know that it's dirty. You know it's dirty. Be simple about it. A dove doesn't want to be dirty. A dove avoids dirt. So harmless as doves, stay away from it. Simple concerning evil. Abstain from all appearance. That's simple. Just keep your distance from it. All right, we'll stop there. Verse 20, there's a few things I'd like to say. I don't want to rush through that. We'll finish the book of Romans next time. All right, because the chat section uh, does work for me. I've been seeing a few comments come in during the lesson. Uh, I know there's about a 20-second delay, so I'm just going to fill that time by with, with prayer. However, if you do have a question, please feel free to, to pop it in, and I think I'll be able to get it and answer it if I can. And if there are no questions, we'll just uh, close for the night. But thank, you, thank you, folks, for, for being here tonight with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to look at this chapter. And Lord, a lot of these names, they're they don't mean to us what they once meant to the church. One day, Lord, we'll get to hear the whole story behind these names. I thank you, Father, for the many people in our church that are worthy to have that good mark put on them, that are fellow laborers and helpers in Christ. And Lord, help us with this subject of marking those that cause division Lord, help us to be wise about how we do that. Help us to just avoid the evil. Help us, Lord, to that command you gave us, to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, to have that proper balance in our lives. Father, I pray that you please, the rest of this evening, the seed that has been sown in our hearts, please, Lord, let it sink deep down. Father, let it change us. Let us wake up tomorrow ready to put to use what we've learned and heard today. Thank you for your grace and your help throughout the day. Father, have your hand upon these students, upon these people that have tuned in for this lesson. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.